Welcome to Wisdom Radio. This is your host, Andy Haidt, and today we're delving into the connection between spirituality and science, specifically as it pertains to angels. You know, so many people believe in angels. Few can really define them or what role they play in our lives, and especially now during these turbulent times or during these unusual times. My two guests today one on the side of spirituality, the other on the side of science, have come together and co-authored a book called The Physics of Angels. It should be a very interesting show. Reverend Matt Fox is an internationally acclaimed spiritual theologian. He's an Episcopal priest, an activist, and was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years. He's written more than 30 books and has received numerous awards and is recognized as one of the leading experts on angels among other things. Rupert Sheldrake, who's joining us from London, is a celebrated biologist and author of many books, specifically on the theory of morphic fields and morphic resonance, which is a theory that the universe is alive and has an inherent memory that we can access. His book, Science Set Free, won the Book Award from the British Scientific and Medical Network. So I'm really happy to have them with me today. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you today? Fine. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Fantastic. Well, perhaps each of you can start us off today giving us sort of a one-minute overview. People are curious about how you met, what attracted you to each other, and to the important work you're doing to help bridge science and spirituality. And maybe, Rupert, you can start us off with that. I think we probably came to know of each other first through Father B. Griffiths, who was a wonderful English Benedictine monk who lived in India for many years and in whose ashram I stayed when I was in India. Um, and we met, I think, first in California. And I was uh, very drawn to talking to Matt because he has a lively mind, he's curious and open, but deeply grounded in the Western tradition. I mean, he's a scholar of St. Thomas Aquinas, of medieval theology, and so on, but had this lively interest in what's happening today, and how spirituality and science might interact with each other. Uh, These were exactly interests that I wanted to pursue, and so I I felt very fortunate to meet him, have a chance to start a series of conversations, must be at least 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, um, maybe 25 years ago, um, and we've been continuing those conversations ever since. We last met in person in London a few months ago. That's fantastic. Well, I agree that my memory tells me, as uh, as uh, imperfect as it is, <laughs> that it was Father B. Goodness that brought us together, and um, uh, Father B. was a really very saintly man and, and a scholar and very much an ecumenist, Living as he did in fifty years for fifty years in this ashram in southern India, which uh, though it was Christian in its base, was very Hindu in its in its style and in its outreach. Um, I've also, I've been long interested in the science and spirituality, science and religion. Um, Brian Swim, the cosmologist, was on my faculty way back in um, over thirty years ago when I was still in Chicago and. Um, we both met Father Thomas Perry the same day when we invited him out to <clears throat> speak at our program in Chicago, and um, we were both very taken. He, he 
even more than I, because then he left the next year to study uh, with Father Thomas Berry and wrote some books with him on the universe story. But, um, yeah, partly it's my Dominican tradition that Thomas Aquinas, the great 13th century theologian Dominican, said that a mistake about creation is also a mistake about God. So obviously, uh, theologians ought to be studying nature and studying creation and its scientists who are in the front line. And Rupert is one of those scientists who's really on the front line. He um, has the courage as well as the intellectual or human, not only as a scientist, but he's studied philosophy and theology very deeply as well. But he has the courage to go out on a limb and to ask questions of science, that science is, um, is too invested in the current uh, system to ask of itself. And I admire that very much, not only for his personal courage, but intellectually and, and even um, professionally. Um, I, I've been out on the limb a little bit, too, as a theologian, and so I guess we have that in common, that we're willing to kind of test the, the boundaries. And, um, and we do it together. We've written this book on the physics of angels together, but we also wrote a book called Natural Grace, which covers some more generic topics about science and religion, including topics around prayer and darkness and education and uh, uh, spiritual experience, if you will. So um, I derive a lot from our dialogues and our friendship, and, uh, uh, and I always will. And I think that this is kind of a model. I think I can't imagine an authentic a theology school that doesn't have scientists on their faculty today uh, telling us mm-hmm. about the uh, the truths and the mysteries of, of nature. It's very, uh, very refreshing, and it's so important, especially now, I think, for this type of joint exploration to take place, because, as you say, your perspectives can inform one another and then take it to the next, take it to another level, I imagine, even. Well, definitely, it's like anything else, when two people get together, a third thing is born. And um, I think that by interweaving on these various topics, and specifically this topic of angels, I certainly was taken to a place that uh, theology has not taken me before. Um, in terms of angels, do you, you know, I sort of imagine um, an angel, the way they're portrayed in paintings, this um, cherub with wings and light, sort of a light being, Let's just talk about what you both think they look like. What form do they take? Um, is it one form or many? Um... Well, traditionally, they take many forms. They can take whatever form they want. Hilligard <clears throat> um, of Bingham uh, talks about them sometimes as orbs of light, and so does Lorna Byrne, a contemporary woman who has been experiencing angels since she was two years old. And... Um, uh, uh, and sometimes they take on the more traditional form that we see, I think, that, that almost look human-like, maybe with wings. But um, uh, that's the tradition that they can take on any form, including the form of an animal or the form of a human being. But part of what we're doing in this book, thanks to um, Rupert's uh, imagination, is uh, envisioning angels that are far larger than just our, our human uh, agenda as such. So... Maybe uh, Whooper wants to speak to that about the role of mm-hmm. angels in the cosmos. That would be great. Yes. Well, the the thing the thing that interested me most about this series of discussions with angels was not so much the 
human level. I mean, there are many people who've had experiences with angels, and that's very interesting and important. Um, but I was, being a scientist, I was more interested in the kind of cosmic level. We live in this vast cosmos, you know, billions of stars, billions of galaxies, um, no doubt many, many planets, gas clouds, and so forth. Um, it would be a funny thing if angels were just confined to Earth and only just here to help out humans when they needed help. I'm sure they do do that. But um, I was interested in what they do in the rest of nature. Um, and when we read the works on angels by Dionysius the Areopagite, who was a, a Syrian monk in, in what's often called the Dark Ages, and St. Thomas Aquinas and Hildegard of Bingen, on whom our book is based, um, we saw that there's, there's this cosmic dimension to the angels. They're the guiding principles of the cosmos, not just of humans. So what role do angels play in relation to stars and galaxies? Um, now, the usual scientific assumption is that stars and galaxies are just unconscious matter governed by mathematical laws. I think that's far too limited a conception. I, for various reasons, think that the stars and the galaxies are conscious beings. I think the sun and the other stars think. I think they have a mind as well as a body. And the intelligence of the sun or the intelligence that guides the sun and the stars and the galaxies are intelligences beyond the human level. They're not divine in the sense that they're less than God. Obviously, a star or a galaxy in the universe has a lesser being than that of the God of the entire universe. Um, but the, they still have a kind of consciousness that's probably beyond the human level. And in the Middle Ages, uh, one of the conceptions of angels was that there were innumerable intelligences guiding the cosmos between the human level and the divine. It wasn't just a human mind and God's mind and everything else was just mechanical in between with no consciousness. It was a living universe full of consciousness. I think we're returning to that sense of a living universe full of consciousness, as, as I discuss in my most recent book, Science Set Free. Um, and angels are, I think, part of that, and they're a way in which we can begin to discuss that in a way that connects with our own uh, Western tradition. Mm, very, very interesting. So the they're an intermediary, as you... So an, perhaps an intermediary between a God consciousness and our own, or... Um... Well, they have that role as well, but I think they have a role in the ordering of nature, you see. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we think in terms of an evolutionary universe, which is what modern science reveals to us, a cosmology where the universe began very small, less than the size of a head of a pin, um, 14 billion years ago, and it's been growing and cooling down and expanding and evolving ever since. That is the standard modern picture of the universe. That's not an alternative view. It's the mainstream view taught in all universities. Um, this evolutionary universe is creative. New things happen that were never there before. At one time, there were no stars, no galaxies, no planets. At one time, there was no life, um, biological life on Earth or anywhere else. At uh, one time, there were no crystals and molecules. How does this vast creativity of the evolutionary process unfold? Is it just blind chance, which is what conventional science tells us? Or is there a creative intelligence, or many creative intelligences? 
I prefer the idea that there are many creative intelligences at different levels guiding the evolutionary process. I'm not in favor of the intelligent design idea, which tends to think of an external engineering-type intelligence imposing designs on machinery, which is itself inanimate within nature. It's much too mechanistic. I think we live in a living universe with many, many kinds of intelligence, an intelligence guiding the Milky Way galaxy, another intelligence guiding another galaxy, um, guiding them and relating them to God. But, no, but I don't think God is sort of controlling and guiding every aspect of nature directly. It's just like, you know, there's a kind of system of ordering which exists all through nature, where you have, a, I mean, it exists in human institutions. I mean, President Obama is not... Um, personally supervising the operation of every U.S. government office. Um, uh, other people are doing that, and there's a whole hierarchy, a delegated series of more or less intelligent people running things. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think the universe is like that, and that's the traditional conception. And the book by Dionysius the Iopagite is called On the Celestial Hierarchies. And, and that's one of the books and conceptions that we discuss in our book, The Physics of Angels. Well, it's very interesting. You know, it reminds me a little bit of a garden. Um, I'm a gardener, and, you know, when you start out in the spring, the garden looks fairly dead. You know, there's just soil. and But, you know, you put the seeds in, and then life takes over, and over the course of the summer, all sorts of things happen in the garden. It attracts more and more and more life, and then it has a cycle, and it begins to uh, fall back and, and then go back to this sort of barren state again. But the, the seed carries the intelligence. And I'm wondering if it's something like that um, with the universe. Well, again, what, um, uh, what Rupert is talking about is, is not without precedent, um, <clears throat> so far as Thomas Aquinas, too, talks about how the angels are actually the governing of the of the universe and its parts. But of course, obviously today, as he points out, the universe is so much vaster and uh, more creative than uh, we ever thought before. But also something I learned from Rupert, and that's in the book, is that um, Darwin's right-hand man, who really helped him develop the theory of evolution, named Wallace, um, Himself, they split, Darwin and Wallace split over the subject of these guiding intelligences or angels. That Darwin said it was blind chance that made everything happen, and Wallace didn't buy that. And uh, he said there must have been angels involved. So Rupert can speak more to that, but I find that very interesting. And also the fact that, of course, Darwin has gotten all the press <laughs> and the, uh, uh, you know, the accolades for the theory of evolution. And Wallace has been uh, left by the wayside, sort of. He didn't have the PR um, uh, uh, contacts, I guess, that uh, that uh, Darwin had. Yet they were they were equals when it came to developing, I think, the uh, the theory of evolution. Well, when can we yeah. talk about the the morphic field? Yeah, the can we talk about the morphic field and its connection to uh, this uh, type of evolution and how angels fit into that? Or maybe you could first just describe what that is and um, how it ev helps evolve us. Okay. Um, well, my idea of morphic fields is the organizing fields of 
all the different self-organizing systems in nature. A galaxy has a field that organizes the whole galaxy. A solar system has a field that organizes the whole solar system. Um, uh, a wolf has a field that organizes the whole animal. Uh, a palm tree has a field that organizes the whole palm tree. And within the palm tree field, there are the tissues and the cells and the molecules. And so nature is made up of different levels of organization. And each of those levels is what I call a morphic field. Morphic comes from the Greek word morphe, meaning form or shape. Um, and I think these fields have a kind of memory. Basically, what I'm saying is there's a, a kind of memory in nature. Um, each species, each kind of thing has a kind of collective memory. And uh, most of nature works habitually. Um, a palm tree grows up into a palm because it has a palm habit. A rabbit becomes a rabbit because it has a rabbit habit. Um, uh, you know, most things in nature are habitual. Um, I think nature is governed by evolving habits rather than by uh, eternal laws. Now, the habits are mostly unconscious, like most of our own habits are unconscious. Um, they depend on memory, but it's an unconscious memory, and the habits happen unconsciously. But then there are periods when you have to do something new, creative, when there's a challenge, a problem that the old habits won't work for. There's the chance for something new to come in. And I think that that opening for creativity, uh, which happens all through the evolutionary process at every level, molecular, crystalline, cellular, animal, ecological, uh, astronomical, um, that that's the point at which um, the guiding influence, the creative influence of angels, or if you want a more general term, creative intelligences, uh, may be particularly important. And once a new thing has happened, and once it's been repeated, if it's successful and gets repeated quite often, then it becomes a new habit. And that becomes part of the evolving habits of nature. But then there's always scope for something new, uh, and that's what evolution is, a kind of interplay between habit and evolution and, and creativity. Hmm. So how does that how does that relate to DNA, say? I think DNA is just one molecule among others. I don't think that the genes contain all the instructions for an organism. We know what genes do. They contain the instructions for making a sequence of amino acids that gives you a protein molecule. So the genes in your body and mine enable us to make the right proteins. But they don't explain the shape of our noses or the structure of our arms or hands or the wiring of our brain um, any more than the building materials delivered to a building site explain the architectural plan of the, architect, of the building. You have to have the right building materials to make a building. Um, uh, but the plan itself is not inside the bricks and the cement and the timber. And I don't think the plan of the organism is inside the genes. Many biologists used to think that. Um, but it's now becoming clear that genes have been grossly overrated, and they don't explain, in most cases, more than 5 or 10% of inheritance. It's uh, The realization that this is a problem is quite a new thing. It's only in the last three or four years. I discuss it in my book, The Science, uh, Science Set Free. It's called the missing heritability problem. And that is, has become a problem because genes have been so overrated. I think habits are what organisms inherit as well as genes. And what is some of the evidence, um, let's say experimentally, 
of this type of evolution, um, let's say with mice or ha have the, these types of experiments? Uh, I'm sure you've... Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, 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 there are several kinds of experiments. Uh, the easiest to understand are about behavior with rats, actually. Um, if you train rats to learn a new trick in one place, then rats all around the world should be able to learn the same thing quicker just because the rats have learned it in one place. And there's actually a long series of experiments started at Harvard uh, and repeated at Edinburgh University and then at Melbourne that showed in Australia that showed uh, rats got much and quicker and quicker at learning a new trick, escaping from the water maze by swimming out of it. Um, they learned it quicker and quicker all over the world. And what's more, it wasn't just rats descended from trained rats that were passing it on through the eggs and the sperm. It was all the rats of that breed were getting better, even if their parents had never been trained. Uh, so there's already evidence for this kind of collective memory effect in um, inheritance. And of course, this has big implications for evolution. Regular evolutionary theory uh, thinks that creativity happens just by chance, a random mutation, then the genes selected over hundreds of generations leading to a change that spreads through the population very slowly and gradually. Um, I'm suggesting that changes can occur very quickly. And as a matter of fact, there's some recent work on mice uh, which supports this general principle. A paper in Nature a few months ago called Inheriting the Fears of Fathers. And the scientists trained some mice to um, be afraid of a smell called acetophenone. It's a synthetic chemical they would never meet in nature. They were um, trained to become afraid of this. It was one of those old-star cruel conditioning experiments. Every time they smelt acetate and then they got a mild electric shock in their paws. Mm. And so after a few times, they were terrified whenever they smelled acetate and then. The interesting thing is that the, the children and the grandchildren of these male mice uh, were terrified of acetate and then. And this was in just immediately, over in the, you know, the next generation. It wasn't like a mutation of fear to acetophenone by chance built up over hundreds of generations. This was an immediate effect, and this must affect the whole evolutionary process. These um, things that are learned or, or creative steps can be inherited immediately by morphic resonance. Um, and um, that means that evolution can happen much more quickly than anyone had supposed in conventional biology. I think one application of this to the human realm and um, Rupert and I talk about this in our book on uh, natural grace, it regards ritual, because ritual has a lot to do with tapping into memory, collective memory. Um, Rabbi Heschel says all of Jewish liturgy can be summarized in one word, to remember. And the word zikr, that is a part of Sufi um, practice, uh, it means remember. And Jesus' words would do this in memory of me at the Last Supper. So the whole idea that when humans gather in the collective to remember um, that there really is an advancement or a potential for advancement in terms of our evolution. If we're remembering, um, what should they say, uh, uh, commandments to love one another or to do justice, that, uh, that could has a potential to really uh, push human evolution forward. And uh, I think that this, you know, we can take this 
uh, discussion um, very much into the human realm and ask, you know, what are the shortcuts for awakening uh, human beings? And, of course, the whole tradition of angels is that they are um, expert at intuition. Thomas Aquinas says angels learn only through intuition. So as humans get more into our intuition, and I think I would identify that with our mystical or right brains, that uh, there too we're going to encounter these creative intelligences that can uh, beef up our own creativity, because clearly we need a lot of it today to pull out of the the, uh, the dive that we're in, whether it's about the ecological devastation that we're creating mm-hmm. or um, our failing educational and political and, and even religious systems. Well, and we have to tap mm-hmm. into creativity, and the angels are, are a big help in that regard. Well, even in the short time I've been doing this show, five years, um, I've noticed a big um, increase in the number of people interested in awakening the, uh, and connecting to that intuitive, creative intelligence that's all around and uh so it's very hopeful i don't know if you've noticed that as well matt in your work um, i have for many years i when i was lecturing i would hear yes but but around i don't know 15 years ago it, it kind of changed to yes and um but, but part of that too is the is the shadow side i think as people wake up and realize that we haven't advanced very much when it comes to uh, war and militarism as solutions, what I call the dominance of the reptilian brain. And um, and we look around and see what we are doing and have done to the rest of nature. I think that this um, the, 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 the crisis is also a motivator. Uh, Father B. Griffiths used to say that uh, despair is a yoga, that many people do not experience spirit or God until they bottom out, until they go deep into despair and taste it. So I think the dark night of the soul, or the myth is called the dark night of the soul, becomes an, a motivating factor as well to uh, shake us out of our complacence and uh, to look for different uh, directions. And even what Rupert has done with his recent book, he's shaking up the dogmas of science that are just um, spinning along without critique and are being taken for granted. And I, too, am trying to shake up some of the dogmas of religion that... Uh, need not to be taken literally, but need to be understood in a more metaphorical and therefore a more t- intuitive way for them to be really be useful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that it is time for more and more people to wake up. Um, as you say, we're maybe running out of time on this planet if we don't turn things around especially with the climate and with other environmental situations. Can we turn it around? Can angels help us? What do you both think about that? Well, I think so. I mean, if angels are guiding intelligences within the natural world and within the cosmos, um, then presumably they can help. And why would they help us? Well, presumably we have to ask them. Um, They may help us anyway, but... um, if we have a relationship with them, which we can through prayer and invocation and through honoring them, uh, then I think they're more likely to help us than if we take them for granted and ignore them. And we do have a ritual way in which we can uh, connect with them. Uh, There's an angel festival, of course, which is Michaelmas, the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels, the 29th of September. And I myself make a point of 
uh, going to um, a service. This year I went to Westminster Abbey in London. It was the most magnificent service to honor the angels and to um, reconnect with them in a ritual form. There were nine priests in golden robes, this great medieval abbey with a full choir with wonderful singing, and they hold of this medieval building echoing to this chant. It was really impressive, and this is a time-honored way in which people within the Christian tradition have connected with the angels. So, of course, we don't have to wait till September the 29th to do it. We can do it any time. And um, so I think that if we're going to um, be helped by them, then the most important thing we can do is ask them. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we you know, we have people listening of all different um, religious beliefs, some spiritual, some non-affiliated in other words, spiritual, non-affiliated uh, with any particular religion, uh, connecting through meditation and quiet walks in the woods and um, other ways. Matt, could you speak to that? Yes. Um, the, the angels are very uh, ecumenical. Uh, they're not restricted to any one religious faith. All spiritual traditions talk about angels or spirits. And... Um, this woman I referred to earlier, Lorna Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E, people can look her work up on the web, um, who has been experiencing angels since she was two. She says that there are many unemployed angels on the planet today. She says that God pouring angels onto the planet to help humans, mm-hmm. but humans are not asking for their help. They're unemployed. The angels are unemployed. So um, I think that's, that's a way of talking about it, too, and, and what... Uh, called invoking the angels and um, asking them for help. And I think that, um, as Aquinas says, angels cannot help but love, and um, and that angels are always on the road of, of, of intuition. So I think as we develop our mystical side more and our, myst- and our intuitive brains, and again, I think that education should be helping us to do this. I don't think education should just be about facts and definitions. Um, and quantity, it should also be about uh, uh, imagination and creativity and, and potential. And, and Einstein himself said that, that intuition is a sacred gift. Rationality, he says, should be serving intuition. But we live in a society that honors rationality and has uh, forgotten the sacred gift of intuition. So I think that we have to bring back this mystical dimension to our uh, imaginations again. And ceremonies like the one that um, Rupert referred to on the uh, 29th of September, but other forms of, of worship and ritual and ceremony need to be um, invigorated. Consider how 69,000 people went out to the desert this summer for the Burning Man experience um, in, in the western United States. I think what that shows is there's a deep hunger for ritual and ceremony today. And... Um, Often our, our mainline uh, uh, religions are not are not serving it up. I think that there are many art forms today, just as in the Middle Ages, invented the stained glass and the Gothic architecture. Uh, so today, I think there are many art forms that could be steered into this realm of experiencing the sacred and experiencing, uh, therefore, the angels. Because the tradition is that angels um, uh, love to be present for worship. And uh, therefore, we should be doing worship that is worthy of ourselves and of the angels. And is there a language, um, a language of 
a connection, perhaps love and gratitude. Uh, we've been talking about uh, recognizing these energies and calling on them and um, certainly uh, feelings of love towards each other, towards the universe, the earth, the animals um, seem to also elevate people into that realm that helps to make that connection. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I just I think invoking the four directions is a good way of bringing in the angels. The four directions, the number four is a cosmic number, north, south, east, west, and also above and below. And um, uh, this is one ancient way of um, acknowledging that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves and that there are these intelligent guides, as uh, Rupert calls them, angels, that can be called in from all the directions. Uh, that's one way, I think, of getting beyond our narcissistic um, anthropocentrism and um, calling in the spirits, including the spirits of our ancestors, that what, what the West calls the, the communion of saints. Um, the, some ancestors join the, the spirit world as well, and so to acknowledge them can be a, a way of uh, living in a much better, a much bigger world, one where psyche and cosmos come together. Consider Stonehenge. You know, why did our ancestors drag these thousands, some ton uh, rocks into place before the wheel was even invented? What motivated them for that? Well, it was the um, the seasons of the year, the solstice and the equinoxes. It was the psyche relating to the cosmos, that this is terribly um, motivating for human beings. And uh, we can rediscover, I think, this this uh, sense of the of the liturgical uh, seasons corresponding to the cosmic um, uh, uh, unfolding, uh, just that you mentioned the, the seasons of, of uh, gardening. Uh, and uh, uh, I think our souls are kind of wired to make those connections. That's so interesting that this, um, the idea of our ancestors and and that throughout the ages, uh, human beings have had to create that connection, make an effort, um, because otherwise we do tend to fall into our complacency and uh, just taking care of living day to day. And certainly now with all, all of the distractions, it's even life has become so loud. Um, and it seems as though these energies talk more softly. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Aquinas says angels are bearers of the divine silence. So there is a connection between silence and being still and connecting to these, uh, these other worlds, if you will, these greater worlds. And, uh, and as you mentioned, meditation, silence is a way of um, calming the soul so that we do experience uh, uh, divinity and, uh, and those that um, represent divinity, the angels. Rupert, is, thank you. Is there, any, um, Rupert, is there any connection that you've seen between frequency and connecting uh, in terms of our brainwaves or our physiology, uh, creating optimum conditions physiologically to make these connections? Well, I mean, there is some research on um, brain activity during meditation. 
um, which shows that certain parts of the brain become more active and other parts become less active during meditation. Um, I'm not sure that it helps us very much. Um, they're assuming that our mental activity is linked to the brain, which it is. Um, this just tells us something we might have guessed anyway. I don't think it tells us anything very special or significant. Um, so I'm not sure. That, I mean, I suppose I mean, the main point is the point Matt's just made, that we're more open, and the point you made yourself, Anne, we're more open to, to um, these intuitive and creative and spiritual realms when we're not distracted, when we're not busy with our chattering minds, when we're not um, just on the kind of treadmill of emails and things. Um, so I think that there has to be a space. Uh, and traditionally, prayer and meditation and chanting and music um, and pilgrimage um, create a space uh, where there's more chance of, of the spiritual realm and, and our normal minds uh, connecting uh, together. Um, so I think the, the physiology of somebody in that state would be different from the physiology of someone who's frenetically busy doing mundane tasks. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we can see that even without the aid of electrophysiology or brain scans. Do you think that we, uh, our energy, our intelligence, um, survive beyond our bodies? Do you think we, we have several lifetimes or reincarnation? And how does the, um, how do angels um, play into that? Well, traditionally, um, angels are present at death. That's one of the most important jobs is to usher the human soul into the next um, arena. And um, and this is a, a universal teaching. This is not just uh, Jewish and Christian teaching, but you find among the Egyptians and others, too, that the angels are a bridge between the realms. So um, I think um, a serious look at angels does raise these questions about mortality, immortality, and um, uh, there are many stories, of course, too, of people encountering the light when they have a near-death experience, or even some who, who have seemed to have come back from a death experience. And, of course, the whole language of resurrection in the West is, um, is another way of talking about this... Um, this uh, what happens after death. Uh, Meister Eckhart, the great 14th century mystic, said that uh, life dies, but being goes on. And he also said that the spark of the soul never goes out, but the spark of the soul is a light that, can, that is immortal. So um, there are many teachings, uh, East and West, and again, I think it's universal in world religions. That this is not what we see is not the only world that we live in, and it's not the only world that um, that what that ends uh, when we die. Uh, that there is another another um, incarnation, if you will, another expression of being, uh, different from the visible one. Mm -hmm. Now I'm happy for Rupert to jump in here too, but that's kind of my quick answer. Yes. Well, I think that um, my own view is that we can, after death, 
we continue a kind of developmental process um, in something a bit like the dream realm. It's like um, dreaming but not being able to wake up once your body's physical body's dead. You can't wake up anymore. Um, so it may be like being trapped in a dream realm from which it's possible to move on beyond. This is a bit like the traditional doctrine of purgatory. Now, it may be for some people um, uh, being reborn in, in, in a, a physical body in this world or perhaps in another world on another planet. Um, but I find that many of I'm not myself terribly drawn to the idea of reincarnation. Um, and the inter- I lived in India for quite a number of years, and the interesting thing about it, reincarnation in India is that people assume that that's what's going to happen, but it's not what they want. Um, whereas people in the West who've taken up reincarnation speak about it as if it's something that's desirable. In Hinduism and Buddhism, it's deeply undesirable. Um, it's what happens to you if you haven't reached a stage where you can escape from the cycles of um, reincarnation or rebirth. Um, and the point about Eastern spiritual disciplines is not to be reincarnated. It's, 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 it's to escape reincarnation. Um, now, insofar as the traditional Christian doctrine is that uh, rather ignores reincarnation, and I mean, I think it's possible, and I think it happens, but I think it's an exception rather than the rule. But um, from an Eastern point of view, it would be good news uh, that um, you're not going to be reincarnated, because that's the aim of their entire spiritual practice, is to escape from reincarnation. I guess none of us will will really know until it's time. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's we may know in our own case if we're reincarnated, but we may not know for other people. And the trouble is, well, it depends how collective our afterlife is, how much we know about others. And presumably, to start with, we might be encapsulated in a, a more limited world of ourselves and family and friends and stuff. But we may come to get a very broad overview. All the answers may be revealed, yes. Sure. Well, perhaps one of the things that people are tuning into um, when they do a past life regression is maybe they are reading other lives of other people. Um, Maybe there is an intelligence that retains a memory. We were talking about remembering who we are. So maybe there's like a collective intelligence um, well, the, the morphic field, yeah, the, yes. the, the collective memory. But I want to underscore what, what Rupert said about um, the tradition of purgatory in the West. I've often compared that to the tradition of reincarnation in the East. That what they're both saying is if you don't learn love this time around, you're going to learn it someplace, sometime, another round. Another round. And uh, uh, so, I, again, though, I think that the the, the, the promise, if you will, of resurrection in the West um, would be a very great news to everybody, including um, Easterners, as as uh, Rupert suggested, <laughs> that reincarnation is, is more of a punishment almost than it is a a um, a, uh, a reward, if you will. Uh, and of course, the, the tradition about uh, uh, life after death. In the West, it is and in fact, it's it's a collective experience. So the beatific vision is a collective experience of extreme 
an everlasting bliss, if you will, in the, in the presence of life and love and light. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to tell you both a story. Um, when I was pregnant with my son, um, I clearly, and I have uh, never seen anything like it before or since, but I did see very clearly a, a, a little glowing cherub come through my ceiling when I was lying in bed. And it came through, you know, first its toes, and I thought it was a little twinkling light in the ceiling. And, but then it just actually came through the ceiling until it was a full bo- light body cherub. It just looked like a little baby. Um, and then I screamed at the top of my lungs because <laughs> I was afraid. I didn't know uh, what it was. And, and then it just disappeared. It went right back the way it came. And I always wondered what that was and if it was an angel. (laughs) There you go. You scared it away. (laughs) (laughs) And ever since, I've been trying to get it to come back. (laughs) Well, you know, um, in the Bible, whenever the angels appear, the first first word is usually, don't be afraid. So, uh, you know, there is something (laughs) awesome you see in there for terrifying about an angel uh, and even a little one like you said there but it sounds to me like that could have been a precognitive experience too of the, the soul of your child mm-hmm. um, I take it it was not malicious in any way oh no it, it looked it, it held its arms out to me and I uh-huh. I screamed <laughs> <laughs> you weren't prepared you hadn't talked to Rupert the no. scientist yet about, no you see today if it happened again I would be yeah. I would be, be ready. ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you do you hear the uh, Rupert? Do you hear? Have you ever heard those kinds of stories from people? No, I haven't actually. Not about a, a baby floating down through the ceiling. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I I suppose people do have some kind of. There are stories of people with some prefiguration of what kind of child they're going to have. But I've never heard a story quite like yours. Um, it may be that you know, it's not the kind of thing most people talk about. I mean, you've talked about it on the radio, which is very brave, and and there may be people listening who've had that kind of experience too, but who've never mentioned it to anyone because they're afraid they'll be thought crazy. Yes, there is that there is that fear factor uh, where you do, uh, at a certain point, you sort of come out of the closet with y- these types of things. Um, I do think in many ways... I did speak to a group um, about some of these types of experiences, and I did have quite a few people come up after saying they were having similar experiences but were afraid to talk about it. Maybe we could just take a minute to explore that fear factor. Well, I know that um, I have heard, especially since our book came out, lots of stories from a a great variety of people about encounters they've had with angels, not necessarily your encounter with a little cherub, but um, sometimes with very tall <laughs> angels. And um, so, I, again, I think it's about experiences that, that should not be taken lightly. I, I sometimes have people, when I'm lecturing, shut their eyes so there's not a competition and ask them to raise a hand if they've had a personal experience with angels or someone close to them who they trust has had. Mm. And, and often 80% will raise their hand. Wow. Now, of course... My audience is not a cross-section of the population, but it is a cross-section of people interested in these topics. And um, so I, I think that, that uh, the experience of angels and spirits is um, 
is much more um, regular than uh, than our, our culture that remains so silent silent about it would suggest. And I think actually Rupert and we have collected some statistics on this that we have in the in the new preface to our book on angels. It's something like eighty one percent, two thirds of Americans believe in their existence, one-third state they have personally felt an angelic presence in their lives. Um, so, uh, again, I think that we shouldn't uh, leave out the testimony of, uh, of people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and even I other cultures, it. even other cultures, like the, the Hopi with the, with the Kachinas that they... Uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, all Native American ceremony, I was at a Sundance this summer, and the spirits are there, and everyone knows it, and they wouldn't do it without the spirits being there. And it's about calling the spirits in. I mean, I I was Sundancing, I saw this one tree, it was filled with at least 15 or 20 spirits. I saw them smiling. They were all smiling. Wow. So, I mean, um, uh, you know, a lot of religion, is religious practice, is about bringing, bringing the spirits in. Uh, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's universal. That's not just a Western thing. Mm-hmm. So um, again, I think that it. And then too, think of artists too. Uh, remember the word muse is another word for angel. So the muses that attend painters and musicians and poets uh, and architects and you know, dancers. These are real. Yes. Mm-hmm. These are real. You call them in, so to speak. And I've heard many mm-hmm. artists who are not necessarily practicing religious believers uh, tell me that spirits um, come to their canvases and tell them what to paint and so forth. And musicians, too. Again, it's what I said earlier. When you're on a path of intuition, uh, the angels show up, and they will inspire you. And I think one reason we have such a wonderful um, collection of artistic works of angels, I'm thinking of some of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings, that are so marvelous, is that these great painters have experienced angels, and that's what they're painting on their canvases. They're not just imagining an angel. I think that they've experienced these uh, muses, and um, and I think most, many artists experience the muses in their in their uh, vocational um, and inspired uh, work, and uh, and this should not be underestimated. Well, it's, we are, uh, it's so true, and so when you look at paintings, uh, look look twice. <laughs> um, we are just about out of time, but I wanted to give you each a chance to, if there's anything else that's on your mind that you've been working on and that you really were hoping you'd have a chance to share today, uh, I want to give you a little time to do that, um, each of you. Uh-huh. Well, um one thing I have been working on for 20 years is why I became an Episcopal priest is this whole subject of reinventing forms of worship. So we call it the Cosmic Mass, which is a mass, but it's using postmodern language and pre-modern language of dance and rave and DJ and VJ and rap. So what these new art forms to bring uh, uh, worship alive. So we're doing one December 7th. Uh, on the subject of the winter solstice and, and embracing darkness and light here in Oakland. So people can go to my website, MatthewBoss.org, or TheCosmicMass.org, and uh, learn more about it, and you're welcome to come. It's here in Oakland. And we're doing a, another one on February um, 8th, I think, 
It is a Sunday night with David Corton about reinventing economics, uh, an economics that will look for everyone in the world, all the humans and all the non-human beings, and more than human beings. So uh, this is a conscious effort I've been making to try to bring the angels back to worship and uh, bring humans uh, into a context. uh, Okay, great. Well, we'll put that information on the website so people can find it easily. And Rupert? I'm interested in exploring the connection between science and spiritual practices, um, including rituals, which Matt mentioned, and pilgrimage. and prayer and meditation, um, and these are themes that um, you know. Some of them are ones that Matt and I have been exploring together for years. Others, I'm exploring in different ways. And I'm uh, one of the things I'm doing next year that I'm most excited about is a workshop uh, with my two sons, both of whom are interested in these things. One is a musician, age 24. The other is a biologist like me. He's been working in tropical ecology. And we're doing this together in British Columbia um, on Cortez Island, a remote island in British Columbia at Hollyhock, which is a um, marvelous learning center we go to every year. And so details of that and my other activities are on my website, sheldrake.org. And anyone who's interested, take a look. There are also on my website some experiments that people can do themselves uh, with their friends um, Again, that's um, on the website, sheldrake.org. They're free, they're fun, and they help with my research. And they're testing intuitions of various kinds, particularly telepathy. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, wonderful. Well, I'm sure my audience will be very interested in checking out both of those um, activities and following, reading uh, your books and following your work. I think it's really a important thing and just fun and wonderful <laughs> you know it's just um it it so so many of the people that um that i've come across are either on one side or the other and so it's really nice to see the merging of the the the, the two uh, the spirituality and science so i thank you so much and uh, look forward to following your work myself and hope to have you back on again sometime soon thank you Randy. All right. Well, that was great. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, That, again, is uh, with Matt Fox, uh, who is right here. Um, He's in Oakland, but he's uh, internationally known. Um, I'll put the website for uh, Matt Fox and for Rupert Sheldrake right next to this interview on my website, wisdomradio.org. You can find it there. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter so I can keep you informed of all future shows and guests that we have coming down the pike. And it's been wonderful to have you join me today. I wanted to close with a reading. I always like to close with a reading. This reading is called Spirits With You. We are those who have gone before. The source of all creation looks to us to help the living navigate and stay in touch with the divine in their lives. We can only offer help and guidance when you quiet your mind and choose to hear us or sense us through your intuition. Find others on the crossroads of change and reach out to them. Look for them. 
these words are coming to you as we enter a special age, an energetic age that will enable those who wish to see, hear, and feel the truth in their lives. You're needed now. Don't hold back. Step forward. Offer yourself in love and kindness to others on the cusp. You will know what to do if you learn to listen with a loving and open heart. Enjoy the rest of your day or the rest of your evening, and I'll see you next time on Wisdom Radio. Take care.